It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for listening to the podcast and allowing me to share these incredible stories. You can hear new stories every week on Amazon Music and ad-free for Amazon Prime members. I'm Benjamin Hall, and I'm searching for heroes. Today's guest is someone who has gone to the very bottom, but has fought through and now spends his life helping others who have gone through the same. Jonathan Goyer began using drugs when he was just a teenager, and he was surrounded by people who did. His dad died in 2004 from a heroin overdose, someone that he had been using with. In 2009, his brother died from one as well. But neither of those deaths did little to deter his habit, and Jonathan kept using, dropped out of high school, and ended up on the streets of Providence, Rhode Island, homeless and being arrested again and again. In 2012, having been trying to get clean for a while, he fell off the wagon again, and he overdosed. Well, that finally was the last time he used heroin, and it set him on a path not only to recovery, but also to seeking out and helping others around him. Today, we talk about what life was like at the bottom, about family, about how he got over his addiction, and how he then led himself to begin saving others, and also about the opioid epidemic that is spreading across the country. Here is my conversation with Jonathan Goyer. I know that uh, you've been an addict for almost half your life, you have said, and pretty, pretty bad place. And I wonder if you could start off by telling us how you, I guess, how you first became an addict. Right. Um, so, well, I'll say I was born in Rhode Island in the States. Um, my, my father was somebody who always struggled uh, with addiction, both alcohol and drug addiction. Uh, him and my mother were never, were never uh, fully together. Uh, he was sort of kicked out of the house when I was, when I was a, a young, young child. Um, so I grew up in that single family household um, and also with an older brother who's uh, struggled not just with uh, substance misuse, but with mental health disorders as well, too. Uh, at the age of seven, I was introduced to marijuana uh, at a very, very young age. Uh, who was that? Was that by by who? By my by my older brother. So the circumstances were that my mother had to work overtime, you know, to support the household mm-hmm. uh, and my brother, who was. 13 or 14 at the time, you know, babysitting me. Um, and he was introduced to it by his friends. And then uh, eventually it was introduced to me. Um, that was a very, very brief stint uh, of, of usage, if you will, or, or exploration with it. Um, I, but- I, I wonder, there's, there's like a side story here, which I'm curious about. We'll go into much detail. But do you think that marijuana was a stepping stone? You know, lots of people say that it should be legalized. But do you think that if you hadn't made that first step to marijuana, you wouldn't have ended up on heroin? I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, you know, and 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 I have a lot of friends in recovery now, and, and recovery is a very personal uh, journey for people. And some people go an abstinence pathway. Some people, some people turn to just using marijuana, right? So, so to anybody that says marijuana is a gateway drug you could make the argument that it's the gateway back mm. as well. Right. So, yeah. um, but, uh, but I, I think I was sort of uh, predisposed to, um, to easily forming a, a reliance or a dependency on something that took me outside of myself. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, so I wonder if, you know, we were saying at the beginning, whether it is nature or nurture. And I wonder your father was an addict. I mean, do you think that that was, you inherited that? Do you think that was something that in your family you've seen? I think that's without a doubt that is a component of it, right? That was, uh, you know, uh, an inhibitor, if you will, right? That, you know, but uh, but I don't think, I think I could have had that component and had a bunch of other environmental and social factors be different and not, you know, went down the road that I did. So I, I, it, I did play a part, but again, just one one component. So you 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 began you you know smoking marijuana. How fast did that evolve into other drugs? Well, so that at that age, that was a very brief uh, brief stint. You know, maybe a month or something of uh, of usage. But by the age of twelve, I was I was uh, reintroduced to that and introduced to um, 
other heavier substances um, such as uh, LSD, um, ecstasy, which I'm not even sure if that's around anymore, but, um, uh, you know, and, and, and some other substances. And that became more of a, a social settings with, with more of my peers, friends, uh, and things of that nature. Um, and that went on, uh, that went on for a few years, um, you know, going to school, uh, but, you know, partying on the weekends, if you will. Right. Of all of your friends in that group that you were sort of taking these drugs with, how many, because then you were almost living a similar life, how many went on to become full-blown addicts and how many was it just like a, a school, a high school thing? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I would say not many. Not, not, not everybody had, had my story for sure. I would say mm-hmm. 20% or less uh, really uh, migrated towards a s- severe problematic use. That's a lot. That's still a lot, like 20%. Right. Right. And it, uh, and I mean, it, it impacts people differently. So, you know, when you talk about like a lot of people use drugs, legal, illegal, and they use it for recreational purposes, for relaxation, what, you know, what have you. Um, but the, 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 the line is where does it become problematic? Right. And that's something that, um, you know, sometimes it can be defined by the external forces around us, right? Our boss saying, if you come in late one more time, you're, you know, you're fired or, or, you know, or your wife saying, I'm going to take the kids and go, right? So there, there are some indicators of external factors that can uh, help to identify when problematic use occurs, but largely it, it occurs, in, uh, I think, initially internally within us, right? When we feel like, like we're doing something wrong, like this isn't working for us. And I got my first taste of that when I really began probably around the age of 15 or 16, noticing that I began exchanging or sacrificing things that meant something to me for uh, the, the getting and using, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol. Uh, for example, I, I love the outdoors. I love camping. And I can remember being a- around that age 15 or 16 of my friends going on a camping trip and me opting not to go on the camping trip so I could stay home and, you know, and indulge in in substance use. Right. So were you, I mean, at this point, is that when perhaps the relationship with your mother also started to break apart? So did you see that disappear? Um, Well, so the lying, the lying, the deceitful behavior, right? The stealing, stealing money out of her pocketbook, right? That, um, that sort of thing happening parallel with also disengaging from some other, uh, family traditions, right? Like not wanting to go to Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, you know, so there, there was, although, although my mother and I will say have always had a wonderful relationship, there was certainly a withdrawal, uh, on my end, a, a, a disinterest, if you will. In, mm. in sustaining uh, that relationship or continuing to build a healthy relationship with my mother as I as I grew older. And, and so not just this, my mother, by the way, with everybody. Yeah. But. And so this just, just sort of continued, continued to get worse. And then at what age did you reach sort of the lowest point, the worst of it? And what did that look like? Ah, uh, there are so many low points. <laughs> do you remember them all? I mean, I'm not sure, like when you are high or an addict, do you rem- remember the... So, I mean, uh, you know, a few stand out to me, right? And it, and it's funny, by the way, as as somebody with that addictness about them, our brains are almost, uh, you know, positioned or, or always pivot to remember the good times, right? And not not the bad times, right? That's sometimes the, the problem of what perpetuates, uh, you know, continued problematic use. Um, but gamblers, the gamblers will remember the one win. Right, right, right. No, yeah. <laughs> no. and then you chase that, right? Right. Uh, they'll still actually forget the 99 losses, right? And just hone in on that, on that win. Um, so some of the low points for me, um, drop, dropping out of high school. I did, I dropped out of uh, 10th grade of high school. Um, and, uh, so, so there was that, um, so let's see in uh by the were time were you still living at home at that point like was your mother still allowing you to live there or did you become homeless were you do you end up on the streets so i opted to move in with my father uh at the age of 16 or 17 who was a 
currently a heavy, heavy user um, of, of heavier drugs. So, by the way, at this point, I'm, I'm, I've been introduced to heroin, cocaine, crack, um, and that's become normalized uh, in, in my life, the usage of those substances. Was your father providing you with drugs as well? You know, so he was, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit uh, uh, about him in a bit. Um, you know, it, it took me until I was in recovery to understand that when he uh, used drugs with me and around me, that that was a form of uh, neglect. Um, and, and neglect is a form of abuse. Um, it, it actually took me a lot of work on myself to understand that because I loved my father. He could do no wrong in my eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for him, uh, he saw me uh, get, you know, beginning to use heavily on my own. And in his warped, you know, addicted mind, he thought, well, if if I'm using with him, I'm safe. If he's getting the drugs, he knows that they're, you know, not tainted or, uh, you know, or that, that perhaps safer. Um, so for me, I, I fully believe that he, you know, he was doing the best he could uh, with what he had in the circumstances he was in. But uh, but it did. It, it led to, uh, to us using heavily, um, heavily mm-hmm. together. Um, what, what, a, a quick step back. What sort of community were you living in? Like what, what sort of uh, jobs, say, did your mother have? What was it? So my mother was a, was a, like a CNA, uh, nursing, uh, certified nursing assistant. Uh, my father always had businesses of his own that when he was sober, did really, really well with. Uh, and when he was not sober, um, did not do well, <laughs> mm. did not do well at all. Um, but, uh, but by the age of, us uh, uh, 17, uh, my father had gotten, uh, arrested one day, um, and uh shoplifting because that was that had become a normal part of our routine to uh find ways and means to get more drugs was you know resorting to stealing lying cheating etc the um, two of you together you and your dad would sometimes go out and do that yeah. correct, correct to to me as a young 17 year old I kind of thought it was fun. You know, dad was going out and doing it and we, I, we had a lot of laughs, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was a good time. It was, it was wrong. And I, I think I knew in my heart that it was wrong. Um, but I, I, you know, I really admired him and, and looked up to him and was, um, you know, he would talk all the, every day he would talk about one day we're going to get out of this, right. One day we're mm-hmm. going to go uh, and do good. And he, he was, um, you know, f- uh, he was an incredible man who would give the shirt off his back uh, to anybody. Um, but also, much like myself, that I probably get from him, very, very sensitive, right? Just a very, you know. Guy. And I want to, I, I want to get to that because I really want to talk about resilience and recovery. But is that something that all the addicts you were around at the bottom did? Ever, did, did you all say we want out of like we will get out of this? We want to get out of this. Is that a drive in all addicts? I think um, for uh, more often than not, yes, right? Now, you're not walking around, you know, 24 hours a day in the mindset of that, right? But I I think anybody who is really in the depths of active addiction, you know, whether it's five minutes a day or three hours a day, you know, you're thinking that you want to get out of it. Um, But it's equivalent to, you know, getting on a bus and you're not driving it right you're sitting on in in the back seat and you're watching somebody else drive the bus you're watching somebody else take over your life and 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 take the left turns and the right turns and and you're you're just watching the movie you know you're not really in control um of all of your actions at that point so fast forwarding a bit my father got arrested one day for shoplifting one of his many arrests uh, and he went to uh, he went to jail for uh, uh, prison for a, a, a two or three month period, um, which left me to have to fend, you know, on on, on my own, um, which I did. I, I continued my addiction when he got out of jail. Uh, he had nowhere to go. We, we were both effectively homeless at that point. I had gone back to live with my mother. Uh, my mother allowed him to move in um, when upon release from prison. And what happened is he picked up using uh immediately heroin uh again uh and he began using just as he was three months prior 
Um, the problem is uh, his tolerance level had decreased uh, and and he uh, experienced a fatal overdose uh, just days after coming coming out of prison. Hmm. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to hear that. And I I wonder after three months of being clean inside prison, why the first thing he wanted to do was get back to the drugs. Wasn't that sounds like an opportunity? You you're clear. And again, part of another idea I want to talk about is. Isn't that sort of, isn't prison a way of getting clean? Isn't that a great way of moving forward? Shouldn't that give you a real stepping stone to get out of it? And so why didn't that happen? Uh, well, I don't I don't have that exact answer, but I mean, I, I've got some theories, um, not just from him, but 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 other people that I've uh, uh, spent spent some time with. You know, what you're talking about is recovery from the physical sense. You get put in a jail cell for 90 days. Your body will physically recover, right? The human body alone, and, you know, you can attest to this as well, too, how, how quickly the human body can physically recover. But there's no mental, emotional, or spiritual recovery happening in that cell, um, or perhaps very little, right? Depends on what facility you're in, if they offer, you know, rehabilitation programming and things of that nature. But... um but I believe that my father was not able to heal or begin the recovery process emotionally and spiritually. Um, and, uh, and that was sort of the, just the, the easy, the easy way out. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think he had intended to overdose, uh, but that is what happened. And I'll tell you, let me, let me tell you another low point in retrospect, the the day that he passed away, he had uh stolen some money from my mother um that 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 i was i was aware of and he went off to purchase heroin so i was at home sitting waiting for him to return and he didn't return uh now i'm i i'm actually angry at him right because that was he was supposed to come back with some for me right um we got the call about two or three days later you know from the coroner's office i was so uh, in the grips of active addiction, that the first thought, instinctual thought that popped in my head when we got that phone call was that we've got to get down to the medical examiner's office to pick up his stuff because there's probably still money in his wallet that I need to go buy more drugs with. Uh, yeah, that it's remarkable. I mean, I would, I would have thought dad's died of an overdose. <laughs> I, this is going to happen to me. I've got to stop. This is the thing to change me. Right. 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 Uh, no, it's, it, you know, it's the complete opposite because I was, you know, you have the blinders on. That's all, um, you know, that's really all you see when you are in the grips. I'm not talking about somebody who dabbles here and there. I'm talking about somebody who's full blown in the grips of active addiction. Everything that comes across your radar, you know, is like, you know, can this, does this present an opportunity to get more drugs? Will this amount to money to get more drugs? Everything is either goes in the get drugs or useless category. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of the operational mindset uh, that I was in anyway. And I, and I think a lot of other people uh, do as well. So, um, so, yeah. So then, so you continued using, I mean, the, yeah, where was the process where you built up to the lowest at which point you started to, to change? Um, so, well, there's a few more chapters in between here and there, but, um, uh, you know, fast forward, I eventually, you know, I very soon after left, uh, my, my mother's house was, was homeless on the street. Um, I did, did that for, uh, for a year or two. And when I turned 18, I began going in and out of, uh, detox facilities, uh, as a, as a juvenile, you know, you're, you're not offered, uh, not often a lot of resources for, for teenagers, but once you turn that 18 and become an adult, um, you know, I could, I could start doing that. I could also sleep in the homeless shelters too. I can remember being 17 years old and being turned away from homeless shelters. Cause I was not 18. I was not an adult. Um, so, uh, so for me, I was like, Oh, I'm 18. They're all, you know, it opened up a world of resources for me. Well, that started the, the sort of in and out of uh, detoxification facilities um, where you'd go in for five, seven or 10 days, physically withdraw. They'd medicate you to get you feeling better and, and try to offer you um, 
you know, a referral to the next level of care. Um, unfortunately, I would I would often not uh, take that uh, level of care. And we, we have a, a term for it in the recovery field. We call it a spin dry. You go into, you know, you go into detox, you know, you, you get, you know, you get sober for five or six days, you put on 30 pounds, you know, and you go back to the streets and go back, you know, go back using. Um, that occurred for a, for, for a period of time. But you wanted to stop. I mean, you, so there was something already that was making you say it wasn't working because I, I think maybe there wasn't the aftercare, but, but you kept going to, to stop. There was something inside you saying, I need to stop this. Correct. The, 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 the flame was there. It was dim, but the flame of hope was there, was there a little bit. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, uh, having had already been through so much, uh, uh, you know, as a teenager up until the age of 18, uh, you know, when the drugs start wearing off and you're sitting there and your feelings come back and your realization of, of, of all the things that you've done wrong, um, the people you've lost in my circumstance, you know, having to actually look at the fact that my father had passed away, um, feeling bad about the money you sold, the people you lied to, the shame, the remorse, the guilt. Um, boy, that really just, I mean, you turn the corner, you know, you, you physically get get well uh, and you turn the corner and you are just overwhelmed with all of that. Um, and you can mask all of that. You can get rid of all of that sort of uh, worry and anxiety or regret by getting back on the drugs. Well, right. And think about it. If you let's say that you're, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars in debt. Right. And and you've got all of these people that you've lied to that you that you need to face. Um, you're unemployable. You have nowhere to live. You know, would you rather face all those problems or just try to find $20 and make it go away? Right. I mean, it. what's the easier way in that? Right. Um, so that's I think that's a lot of people uh, don't have that as we we're talking recovery capital or social capital um, or just that strong enough willpower, even if you will, to to climb that mountain today. More of our conversation right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So my story is at the age of 19, I did find recovery. I went into a residential treatment center uh, and I did start my uh, start my journey of recovery. And I, I was able to... Uh, get two years sober um, and did and did really, really well, did really, really well for myself, had a good job. Uh, and and at that age, when you get sober at that age, you're learning everything. Right. Like I hadn't even had my first car yet. I was still learning how to do my own laundry. Right. I mean, it, it, all of life was new to me. But unfortunately, after two years thinking that uh, thinking I had figured it out, right, and, or, and forgetting about how serious and, and you know and and scary ad addiction can be, uh, I eventually did uh, pick up pick up uh, using drugs again, and 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 immediately uh, lost everything that I had uh, that I built up in that two year time. Hmm. I wonder. Um... How long? How long did you were you then addicted at that point? Uh, about three years, and that three year period was really, uh, really, really rough. So we're talking between the ages of twenty two to uh, twenty five or so. Um, in the beginning of that period uh, of using again, I had uh, reconnected uh, paths with with my brother who again was seven years older than me. And he was always struggling on and off, on and off uh, with substance misuse and, and diagnosed bipolar, schizophrenic, other uh, mental health conditions. Um, but we had began using together. And uh, there was a, a one fateful day where, where, where he also experienced uh, a fatal drug overdose. Hmm. Goodness. Uh, we, where were you? Were you there at the time? Uh, I, I, I was with him that day. I was yeah. with him that day. And so let, so let me tell you that. So at the age of 22, now losing my brother, I had lost my father at 17. 
Um, and I had also just recently lost my job. All of that stuff I had in recovery. You want to talk about an identity crisis. You, you know, I, I went, you know, I, I was homeless, kind of walking around downtown city, uh, feeling like I had really lost everything. Um, cause it's, it's interesting when we, you know, when somebody asks you, who are you or, or, or how do you identify who you are as a person? You know, our first things are maybe, maybe your job, right? Maybe your work, uh, your family, you know, your significant other, your, your, your home. Uh, and so when you lose all of that in a really relatively short amount of time, um, where does that leave you? You know, uh, and I don't mean lost, you know, it's one thing you lose a house, you can get another house, but when you're losing family members and you're really losing a part of yourself, um, really tough to come back from, uh, really tough to uh, reestablish yourself, if you will. So then, but not even that stopped you either. The loss of two family members. Uh, no, that was a reason to continue using. (laughs) It's, It's quite the opposite. I, I, I fully understand what you say when you think, well, you would, th- one, one might think that would be a motivation to turn your life around. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's that thought process, that framework of thinking is from the perspective of a healthy person. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so w- what, what was it? What finally helped you turn the corner? Um, so, uh, at the age of 25, I had been to 38 treatment centers, uh, 38 different, uh, treatment centers. So you had said at the beginning of the, uh, of our talking today, you said, I believe everybody else gets a second chance. Uh, I got 38 chances. So, um, <laughs> I think, that, I think sometimes it takes more than, more than two and that's okay. But the- that doesn't say much about the recovery treatment or these centers. I mean, if 38 times hasn't helped, then there's a big problem there. Well, I'll tell you this. When I walked into a treatment facility for the 21st time, for the 23rd time, for the 33rd time, the people that greeted me at the door loved me until I could learn how to love myself. Those were some of the only positive, compassionate, real conversations I was having in my life. Um, So although I may have made the decision to leave those uh, facilities prematurely uh, and not take advice left against medical, uh, you know, advice, et cetera, um, those, those times were some of the only conversations keeping me going, keeping that flame of hope alive. Um, So uh, I do attribute that some of my uh some of my kind of internal motivation um to that because when i would go to those facilities they they would tell me you know you deserve a better life you can get out of this um you know you're still young you've got a lot of life ahead of you you know uh, and and that was the only time i was getting that message because on the street corner you know and talking with drug dealers and this and that you don't always hear that yeah, they're not as motivational. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and I, I presume that that is the message that you are now passing on to everyone else. I mean, you are taking what happened to you. Uh, you know what changed you, and you're trying to to give it to others. Right, and it's you know for somebody that's the gift that somebody in recovery has. So in my my previous work, uh, you know. Um, I've worked in the field now for over 10 years. Um, Anchor Recovery, I'd worked at for five years doing peer recovery support uh, work uh, and moved on to to, uh, many, many other things. It's when you're in recovery, you get this natural gift. You inherit this gift of profoundly understanding that anybody can recover, right? Anybody, because it's the old, if I can do it, you can do it thing, right? And uh, and the levels of uh, of compassion and empathy uh, that the capacity that's grown uh, within me of those things has been unparalleled to anything, um, anything imaginable. Uh, so and- that's community. That's community. 
It right. was being part of a community that really gave you the strength to do that. Yes. But well, and that's a large component of it. Right. Um, for sure. Um, but, uh, I did, you know, so fast forward, uh, I did end up, uh, getting, getting arrested a couple of times. I'm entangled with the law, if you will. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just about my worst point, um, was at the age of 25, I had three warrants out for my arrest for, for pretty significant felony charges, um, three different warrants out for my arrest. I was about $80,000 in debt. Um, I was not, I was no longer welcome in my family members' homes. Uh, I was, I was homeless. I was doing, um, whatever it is I had to do to get money every day to, to get a fix to, you know, to, to acquire more, more drugs. Uh, I was unemployable. Um, I, I definitely was undateable, right? There was nobody, you know, that was, that, that was, that was, that ship sailed years prior. Um, you know, and I had about one, you know, one change of clothes, uh, on my back, all of which were tattered and torn and bloody. Um, and I was still reeling from the loss, uh, you know, of family and, uh, you know, and other things. Um, so that, that was just about my, you know, my, my worst low point. Yeah. That's as, or sounds about as low as you can get, but you still had that small flame of hope inside you. That was all you had left. You had nothing else but right. that. Right. And it's, um, yeah, the, it's a, the, the flame of hope. Right. And I'll say on most days I, I wanted to want to get sober. I wanted to want to do better, but I wasn't always there. It was like once removed from, you know, from the feeling, almost like observing the feeling, but not experiencing the feeling. So that was the lowest. And was that the point at which you wanted to change? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you asked me on this, on this podcast. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I, so I had gone to, to prison. Uh, I spent about four or uh, maybe four months or so, which was actually a, a, a bargain for, for everything that I, that I, all the charges I had amassed. What uh, were you I, in for? Oh, a uh, felony, everything from embezzlement to fraudulent prescriptions to heroin possession to, you know, uh, hit and runs with cars, stolen, stolen cars, police chases, um, uh, you know, quite, quite a, quite a record, 17 felonies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I'd go into prison, I got released to treatment and I felt it that time. I felt it like this is going to be, you know, the, like I, I just felt better. I was actually able to, quickly reconnect with some people that I had met in recovery during my two year um, stint of recovery. I started drawing on those social capital resources, those recovery capital resources. Um, and, and I did really well. I graduated a 90 day residential treatment center and I went to go live in a, a recovery house or some people might call them sober houses or halfway houses. In that house, there was one day where I was really struggling mentally. I was sober, but it was so hard. Um, I was trying to find a job. I was struggling to find a job. Nobody wants to hire somebody with, you know, such a felony, uh, you know, record in addition to not having a very good resume the last 10, 10 years prior. Right. And, uh, and I threw the towel in. I went and I, and I bought heroin and, uh, and I used it and I overdosed immediately. Thank God I was in a place where somebody had Narcan and they administered Narcan, which is a medication used to reverse an opioid overdose. Uh, and I and I was saved. My life was saved. That was the point, having actually died and came back to life that uh, that I, you know, I realized, the you know, the party was over. Right. Get busy living or get busy dying. This is you know, this is it. This is the life I had. I made an absolute mess out of it. Um, you know, still in a ton of debt, still needing to sort out some legal issues, um, unstably housed at that, you know, point. Um, but this is it. This is what I've got. And I've got to either take it and make the best of it or or I'm not going to have I, at least I have that opportunity. So I either have the opportunity or don't have the opportunity because it's, again, get busy living or get busy dying. Um, 
And, and that, that was the point for me. So I slowly began the very, very long road to recovery. I just wonder, you know, what could have been in place if, if, if you had been able to find a job sooner, um, if you had, I, I don't know, been surrounded by a longer recovery or sober house, like, like what would have really helped that wasn't there that you think is lacking right now? Well, everybody's, everybody's circumstances are, are different, right? And it's interesting because everybody is trying to recover something different, right? And that is because addiction took something different from everybody. Sure, there are a lot of similarities. People lost their job. They lost their kids. Or maybe they lost family members to overdose. Um, but internally, how you know what that did to us, ad- addiction takes something a little bit different from everybody. And it impacts everybody differently. So you've got to look at what what is it that you're trying to recover, right? Um, so with that said, it's hard to think of a universal um, set of resources that would help individuals. But um, having having worked on the, the front lines of this uh, addiction epidemic uh, now for a decade and, and worked uh, for everything from advocating for legislation, uh, different policies, practices, starting programs, you know, all of that. You know, at the end of the day, there's no system. There's there's really not even a systematic change that's going to occur that's going to cure addiction, right? To me, it's about recovery and it's about community, as you had said. Um, one of my favorite lines is empathy is the language of recovery. Um, when people are in active addiction and they're doing negative behaviors, um, that scares people, right? And a lot of people respond to that with a fear-based mentality. And that comes out in various policies. It comes out in different procedures. It comes out in, in, in what's socially acceptable, right? Maybe it's employers not hiring somebody with a felony record. Maybe it's a landlord not renting to somebody because they have a, you know, a drug charge from six years ago, um, because it's that fear. But understanding that, trying to develop empathy and understand that we're all human, uh, we all make mistakes and, and believing that we're, we're all here trying to do the best that we can. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's funny because I can easily understand when you drive through a city street and you see someone, you know, an addict curled up in a corner, you know, part of you thinks we've got to help that guy save the guy. But the other half of you thinks there's a criminal over there who's making the streets (laughs) dirty. Right. Taxpayers money has gone to that. Like the law should be stepping in to stop him. And, you know, immediately that person becomes a villain. And, you know, I guess that's what's so hard for people to help when it comes to recovery is how do you, because I, I think maybe there is, I, I, I don't know if you think maybe there is some blame on the person or, or maybe the, his, the family wasn't there at the beginning. And it's, it's, it's a really difficult one to square up in terms of what the community can do to just go and you, you can't just go and embrace everyone because I think there need, does there not need to be some ramifications for having taken that path down there? Well, you know, so how do you balance those two feelings? We know that there's a shortage of treatment beds for addiction right now. We we know that the, the capacity for various levels of care, whether it's somebody wanting to talk to an outpatient counselor for their substance misuse or somebody needing a really high level residential, you know, treatment facility, um, we're lacking in in in, in treatment capacity. Um Yes, somebody said, you know what? I, I'll I'll take that pill. I'm having a good time. Nobody intended for it to become the vagrant criminal curled up on the street corner. That's just where it went. But because we don't have the response, the empathetic, compassionate, logical, data-driven, resourceful response to the addiction epidemic, I fear I don't I don't know if we'll ever truly get ahead of it. We'll be back in a moment with Searching for Heroes. Talk to me a little bit about 
what you now do. You you walk the streets. You go out and try and save people who are out there. So you are in on the other, you know, you're in the other place. What are you saying to them? How are you now trying to take what you learned and pass that on? Right. So in in terms of uh, mobile outreach work, which which is so huge. Uh, I, I've done that for many, many years in, uh, from a professional standpoint of going out and engaging people on the street, engaging the guy curled up in the corner, as you say. Um, and it's about building that rapport with them, um, educating them on the resources they have, helping to sit down and assess what their situation actually is, right? Um, a lot of people that are become you know, homeless and so off the grid, perhaps they, they, they need help getting health insurance that'll pay for treatment, right? Um, so just helping to assess their situation and remind them uh, really on a daily basis what the options are that they have. But also, you know, just treating them uh, like human beings, right? Like just, you know, uh, getting them a meal if they need a meal, having a conversation with them, having a normal conversation with them uh, and keeping that flame of hope alive uh, for them. And, you know, everybody, we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but I call it a window of willingness, right? Anybody who has been in the throes of active addiction has experienced windows of willingness where they, they, they did get in the driver's seat for one second uh, of their, of their body and of their mind and said, I've, I've got to do something. I'm willing to do something right now. And it might just be a fleeting thing, right? It might be a 10 or 15 minute window that this willingness appears for. Um, but making sure that people have the right resources um, at hand, the accessible resources to to act on that when that window of willingness opens uh, is huge. Are you just speaking to people out on the streets? And as you said, the physical recovery is possible, but right. the mental recovery is a lot harder. So, you know, yes, you're out there, you're saying, come in, like, let's get you off this. But how do you help them in the longer term? Because that seems to be the harder part. Right. Well, so you're talking about my engagement with people throughout the spectrum of their recovery. Um, mm. It's not logic. You can't walk up to somebody um, who's in heroin withdrawal on a street corner and say, I'd like to give you a job. You know, that's <laughs> not as, you know. Um, so on that street level, just getting them into uh, to engage with um, some form of uh, treatment, some level of care. Right. And by the way, I have people call me all the time. Maybe it's a parent saying my son's addicted. Uh, he needs help. What's the best treatment facility that I can send him to? Right. We want to do our best for our loved ones. What's the best? You know, what's the best thing to send them to the best treatment option? for somebody struggling with addiction is the one that they're willing to engage with at any point in time. That is the best option. Um, but moving, moving along, moving down the spectrum, I think one of the best things that I've been able to do uh, for people in their recovery is, is employment. Uh, I've been able to work my way up uh, throughout uh, a number of organizations um, and, and hire people who are in recovery uh, maybe people that have previous felony records and things of that nature. Uh, one of my taglines is your rap sheet is our resume, you know, and uh, people with lived experience and uh, and help them along, uh, help them along that way. Right. Um, and people, it's the same way people continue to help me in recovery. I had a friend five years ago that convinced me I should buy a house. Um, and I did. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? How crazy is that? Uh, for somebody that was that so had nothing, the thought of me being able to buy my own home um, was what you know it was crazy. That's something somebody did for me, you know, in my fifth or sixth year of recovery. Um, like the gifts just keep coming, right? Like you you have to continue to help people uh, along the way, um, and some people might. You know, some people might get a job new in recovery and excel in that. Other people might take a year off from work and just focus on re repairing some of uh, some broken relationships with family and loved ones. Right. Yeah. Like, like there's not a certain chronological segment that has to happen, but it's about getting back what addiction had, had took from you. So so I take great pride in trying to help uh, people all along 
um, that process and uh, teach and guide and mentor them um, and cheerlead them into to knowing and believing that the quality of our lives can can uh, can increase uh, every day in recovery and every day that our quality of life increases sober. Um, you know, the thought of uh, of using looks looks less appealing and less appealing. Yeah. When you look at the whole spectrum right now, we've got a big opioid crisis at the moment. Do you see things getting better? Or I mean, the figures are jumping up right now. So are we are things getting worse? Uh, I mean, it depends on what you use for for an indicator. But if you were going to go figure, down the, nu- the number of people, the number, well, the number of people dead. Right. If you go down to the medical examiner's office and count the bodies, they're they're climbing and climbing every day. Um, so, so it is getting worse for sure. I also think in the economical turbulent times that we're in, that it's harder for people to, um, you know, to acquire, you know, the resources and stability that they may need, right? Like I was able to buy a house pre-pandemic levels, not sure I'd be able to afford one now. Right. Um, but, uh, I do absolutely think that, that it's getting worse, but again, I think, I think it would benefit all of us to stop looking at kind of the system to make the changes and ask, what can I do as an individual, right? It's not just the police that are going to fix it or just the doctors or the medical community or this, you know, the spiritual clergy community. No, every, everybody's got a job to do and it. And it starts at home. Um, it starts having those conversations. Um, it starts with building empathy for those that are struggling, it helped. Uh, it starts not just in trying to support somebody who's in active addiction, but understanding how active addiction impacts other people. Right? You may have a coworker who has a son or daughter in active addiction, and their life, your coworker's life, is impacted on unbelievable levels. Right? The rippling effect. Um, an impact that active addiction has throughout family members and the community is unbelievable. So, so asking yourself, how can I support that person? Right. Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a father of three and, you know, my daughters are still very young. The eldest is eight, but I, I mean, I suppose and you hear stories of, you know, totally normal families who I know whose children you know, you think you're doing really well in school and just fall off the opioid crisis. And so what what should I be speaking to my children? What should I be looking for? Like, is there something that you think isn't happening? And I would say it's just family, like maintain, be a big family bond, eat together, go out together, do things together, encourage hard work, you know, all the normal things. But is there something that isn't happening right now that that, that we should focus on? I don't know that there's one particular thing, you know, so... SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, is a federal agency uh, in America that that tackles mental health and addiction. And they they define recovery as health, homes, community, and purpose. Now, even with you in your life, if you were to look at those four things, your health, home, community, and purpose, um, if you're keeping those four things, uh, you know, filled and 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 progressing and growing and thriving in those areas um you're you're going to be okay right Th- those are sort of the the, the primary functions of, of of life if you will um so in terms of you know speaking to your daughters etc i think it's more about monitoring those things and are, are are people getting enough of each of that category are they stable in those areas are they thriving in those areas yeah yeah and i thought that the other side of that is I can provide that to my family, but some people would say that it's the government who needs to be doing more, that it should be taxpayers' money that should be doing more, that they need more systems. And I don't know, I'm always reluctant to say the solution to this is that the government should be spending more of our money providing centers. I mean, I think it should be community and home. I think that's where the core is, really. Right. I Well, I think that's, I think that's all we've the only realistic thing that we have more control over, right? The, you know, to, to be realistic, you can sit here and wish and wait that something's going to happen. But again, what is what is your job? What is your role in this? And being proactive and and, and uh, engaging and helping those, you know, community to thrive, right? Helping somebody to find purpose, right? Even with your your daughters, for example, ensuring that they feel like they have a purpose here, even at a young age that they might be, Um 
you know, and helping to guide them and support them and continuing to explore what their purpose might be. Yeah, excellent. Look, Jonathan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Um, you know, yours is an incredible story, really. And I just know that everyone I've spoken to says the same thing. Community, family, you know, what you just laid out, those four things, that's it. That's what we got to focus on. It makes us all stronger. So thank you. I'm going to channel that myself. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for having me anytime. I appreciate it. Not at all. And thank you for all the work you do, Jonathan. You keep staying out there, man. You're saving lives. Thank you. It was really interesting speaking with Jonathan. And I think on one sense, it's because perhaps I struggle with the fact that it wasn't even the death of his father or the death of his brother that led him to change. And, and for me personally, I think that's something that would change in a heartbeat. And personally, when I was injured uh, that day in Ukraine, it was family that gave me that absolute strength to push on through. And so it makes me think about a number of things. First of all, the opioid addiction. How terrible can it be that even the deaths of your close family members can't get you off it? But also perhaps it reminds me that maybe resilience isn't found immediately. Maybe you really have to get to the worst place possible. But nevertheless, it may have taken him a few times. He may have got to the very bottom and to the worst part, but he did eventually find resilience. And I guess he found resilience when his own life was at risk. I do sometimes wonder whether some people are born with resilience and other people come across it. I, I know that when I was injured, the first thought in my mind was, I have to get through this no matter what. And I don't think that I needed to, to reach that point. I felt that it was already inside me. But with Jonathan and with other people we've spoken to, they needed community they needed people. They needed a whole team to get through it. So again, it is also a reminder that we have to do these things together. And one of the things that we talk about with every guest so far is parents and family. And I think this is a prime example where father was on drugs. That led very clearly into the state that Jonathan found himself in. And again, it is a reminder that it must be the first thing we focus on. It's the first thing that gets us through the hardest moments. And it's also the perhaps the most important thing we must do as parents is to make sure that we are there no matter what to guide our children, to make sure they don't fall off. Nevertheless, we see the opioid crisis sweeping across America. We have talked to a number of people who are affected uh, and it is something that needs to be really considered. And, and I think the people who will help others get through such addiction are addicts themselves. And that's why I think someone like Jonathan is a good voice to listen to. And so I think that, you know, you have to put aside the questions of how terrible his choices were early on and realize that he's turned that around. And that's what this podcast is about, uh, is turning around the bad and making good out of it. So uh, a tribute to Jonathan for doing that and for finding a way out of the darkness and a reminder that it doesn't matter how bad things get. You can always pull through. And Jonathan told us that today. Thanks for listening. To searching for heroes listen ad free with a fox news podcast plus subscription on apple podcast and amazon prime members can listen to this show ad free on the amazon music app from the fox news podcasts network subscribe and listen to the trey gowdy podcast former federal prosecutor and four-term u.s congressman from south carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com